0: Welcome to Pharma Launch Secrets, a podcast by EverMed. We host direct, actionable conversations with world leading pharma launch experts that will help you launch your next product or indication successfully. Now, here's your host, Bozidar Jovicevich. And welcome to the new episode of the Pharma Launch Secrets Podcast. I'm joined today by Samir Lal, Senior Vice President at Indigen, a digital-first life science commercialization company helping healthcare organizations prepare for the future. Samir has over 20 years of experience in the pharmaceutical industry and on the services side as well. He focuses on services to medical affairs, safety, regulatory, and market access organizations. And he also co-leads Digital Capability Working Group at MAPS. MAPS is a medical affairs professional society, an organization that has been growing quite a lot over the past five years. And it really gathers medical affairs professionals from around the world in one place. So welcome, Samir. That's a lot. Thank you, Bozi. Thanks for having me here. All right. I'm excited about our talk, our discussion, our conversation today. And I had a guest from Indigen before, so it's really interesting to see how you have a little bit commercial side, medical affairs side, and then we can compare whether you guys agree or disagree. <laughs> so, all right, let's start with you know very really big picture. You work on the medical side, enterprise medical side, as you call it. So what are the really big trends within the medical side or medical affairs side of pharma business that affect how launches are done?
1: Absolutely. As I was preparing for the, this podcast, I was just going through some recent earnings call. I don't know if you noticed you know, the releases which happened for quarter one for a lot of pharma companies. to note, everywhere, you know, there was a lot of uh, focus on reduction sales cost. But in every single of the pharma company, the R&D spend increase and most of them are increasing by double digits. There's some, for example, AstraZeneca, the increase is by almost 22%. So there's a huge industry focus on pipeline, on building pipeline, looking at launches, looking at new indications and so on, right? So clearly, uh, the industry is seeing that launches are going to be very, very vital for the industry's future as well as for the individual companies itself, right? So very, very interesting to And I would like to double-click some of these pieces as well, but I'll pause and let you respond a bit.
0: Yeah, I read a little bit. I was actually having conversations with several farm executives yesterday about it because it was an unusual quarter in terms of results and commentary and all the political changes and pricing changes and then COVID impact of having COVID products, non-COVID products. It was very, very interesting, but I failed to see <laughs> What happened with RD. so the great insight
1: yeah and uh, interesting also is if you look at the trend line last 10 years and so on right if you look at it the number of us patients which are covered by blockbuster drugs has fallen down by 80 percent whereas the revenue has increased by 25 percent that means the industry shift has happened towards more and more rare diseases orphan indications things like that right and even if you look at the kind of products which are coming on Oncology is a preponderant share. I think almost one third of all clinical assets are in oncology, which is phenomenal. All right, but if you peek the layer of the onion a bit more, what I'm also seeing is newer modalities of treatment are getting launched, or at least are in the pipeline and being researched, which is different from what has been in the traditional past. Which means. That the kind of skill sets that we need to have with us for launches is going to be quite different from what we have been used in the past, uh, right? Which also means the customer segments that we will have to address are going to be a little different, which means the way we approach launches are going to be a little different as well, uh, right? All of these are, I think, uh, very good uh, harbingers of change as far as the industry is concerned, uh, But one uh, key piece, the elephant in the room, which I believe has been the key pivot uh, for all of the changes the industry is seeing is the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, IRA, uh, as it is uh, fondly conned by most people, right? We believe that it's going to have a significant impact on the industry's uh, bottom line, at least uh, in terms of the cost of goods sold that they are allowed to show and so on. But as a result the industry will have to do far more on the r productivity side, right? So that means the kind of assets which come out of the r and pipeline as well as how does each launch perform is going to be so much more important, right? Because even as you're cutting costs, you want to make sure you can get the most out of your uh, launches as well. And the final piece on that impact of IRA Bozi is launches of uh, multiple indications. In the past, these indications would be spaced out But if you want to make the most out of the IRA impact, you want to make sure the indications get launched closer and faster so that you can get the most value out of your asset as well. But bottom line is the most interesting time for the industry that it has ever been.
0: Yeah. And just to clarify for the listeners, so Inflation Reduction Act is a U.S.-focused initiative, a federal initiative, and it aims to control or reduce inflation and one of one of the ways to do that is by reducing drug prescription prices and i'm listening to you and i'm thinking all right so one big trend means more outputs with less inputs meaning do more with less meaning increase your productivity like have more more outputs of the pipeline basically and that and you said that increasing r&d correlates with that and at the same time the I wouldn't call it the death of a blockbuster, but reduction of blockbuster drugs combined with same or growing number of pharma launches, depending on year to year. So it's almost like, okay, more launches with smaller diseases, which is great for patients, more launches without not being like $10 billion plus new chimeras. And then industry press to now produce more of that with oncology, of course, being the main area. So it sounds like it's going to be innovation under constraints kind of situation (laughs) which is where most innovation happens so we'll see i don't know if if i'm
1: reading it correctly no i thought uh, you're bang on right and uh, both of you will agree that the pharma industry has always been known for innovation isn't it right if you think about it whatever happened during the pandemic we were able to get a vaccine out in six months time has been phenomenal yes that can be as much a testament of innovation as anything else. So I feel that I see this as a huge opportunity for the industry to actually stand up and be encountered. Right? The last few years, uh, perhaps the industry got a little bit of a bad press, but the pandemic uh, perhaps turned things around and maybe this is the time when uh, we are able to actually show uh, the huge amount of impact that the industry can make on lives of patients in general, right, uh, but on humanity itself.
0: Yeah, 100%. I mean, a lot of things will happen. I assume that there will be a faster way to also bring drugs to market to at least shave off, even if you shave off six months, it's huge. But if you shave off two years by using technology, but being able to identify molecular targets faster or being able to recruit faster or that you can shave off any way you can, I assume that those will have to be done even better in order to meet the financial targets, right? So it's great to understand this big picture and this point of time right now is May, the May 2023, and the impact on the overall situation with globally tight situation, inflation and all the stress that's going on in the US Congress right now with the war and the whole segregation and then the impact of all that on the industry being one of the biggest industries in the world being $1.2 trillion, right? But it's interesting, in US, healthcare is 20% of all the costs. Like $1 out of $5 goes to healthcare, But that doesn't mean it goes to pharma and prescription drugs. Actually, most of it doesn't go to prescription drugs. But prescription drugs are the first one to be cut because it's very hard to tell hospitals they lower your spend. It's interesting. All right, so now if we zoom in a little bit within pharma and medical affairs. So medical affairs function now operates within this new environment. More launches, smaller peak revenue forecasts, do more with less... What's now different for medical affairs over the past three
1: years and the role of pharma launches? I think what's different for medical affairs has been uh, the shift towards uh, the pendulum has really swung towards things medical, especially in the last few years, right? Because of the pandemic, we have seen a pronounced shift from the ACB preference to have a a preference to engage with an MSL rather than a sales rep, and then also lay to a more science-led conversation. I was just speaking to a customer before this and saying this pronounced shift also, which is happening towards better evidence generation. And remember, I was telling you about rare orphan diseases and so on. So as the therapies are becoming more complex, the need for the kind of evidence that you need and therefore the evidence dissemination task could be a much higher order, right? Therefore, the role for medical affairs team, right, to come front and center in that whole scientific dialogue couldn't be even better than it's been ever before.
0: And then in terms of medical dissemination of evidence has always been there. Now there is a need for have less kind of commercial dialogue, more scientific dialogue, and Do it through also new channels. How can medical affairs, when you work with someone launching, right? So when do medical affairs start to have more prominent role? Is it two years before the launch, three years, one year? Is it like the first work is like scientific messaging or think your phase for trials? Where does medical affairs nowadays step in? And then the big word this year is omnichannel, personalization, all of that. How does that play a role for someone preparing to launch, thinking, Oh, how do I disseminate data but
1: you know in this new environment and omnichannel and all that? Thank you. Uh, very good question. Two two parts to this, right? So first is that we are seeing the role of medical affairs come actually much sooner than it has been in the past, Right, definitely few years before the launch. But more importantly, the traditional way pharma used to approach launches was looking at content at the center and say, hey, I've created a slide deck. I'm just using an example and say, who should I send it to? All right? Or I've created a video, who should I send it to? Whereas the omni-channel way is completely opposite. You put the customer at the center and say, okay, what kind of persona does the customer have? This is This bosey? Bozi. He's a more digital native. So he will likely prefer a more video format. Hey, this is Samir. He suffers from attention deficit disorder. So nothing beyond one page will ever capture his attention, right? So can you do an infographic for that person, right? And at the end, it's the same customer, even though we're meeting them through various channels. So can you combine all of that insight and data together so the customer feels there's an integrated journey that they take? All of that is a centerpiece of what is called a zombie channel, right? How do you keep customer at the center? And you provide them information needs in the channel that they want, in the format that they want, at the time that they want. Right. And the huge requirement of that is using infrastructure, right, which may perhaps already be in existence in the pharma company, but more importantly, using the data on the customer and pull it all together. Some of our other industries actually do this very well, but pharma has been behind and they're starting to do a good job to play catch up on the omni channel side, too.
0: And as I'm hearing you say that, you're almost like, okay, the word disseminate, by the way, in itself, I had this conversation with my former boss, who's a chief medical officer, Sassana, for saying the word disseminate actually kind of implies one-way communication, because you're disseminating something, right? I know it's a commonly used term, it's likely not going to change, but it assumes that push kind of one way, whereas now we're talking this push versus what you're saying, like segmented pull, right, where you lead with content at the right time, right channel, as you said. Now, that to me means that there will be much more content coming from medical affairs because if you're going to share something right time, right channel, right person, segment, it means that you have that ready, which means, oh, I need to produce a lot of content. Am I reading this
1: correctly? So yes and no. First, yes, there might be more type of content, but it will be more variety of content than, right? So because remember I told you, you use the same content time, but repurpose it into various formats based on the customer's persona, right? So that's definitely going to happen. At the end of the day, this is the age of hyper personalization as well. So, how do you deliver something which is of need to that individual rather than, hey, I've got something and I'm going to impose it on you? So, exactly the point about dissemination being a one way street, whereas now it's more a two way dialogue, if you may. The omnichannel way or the traditional way on medical affairs has been always ACP centric, but we have seen that two more stakeholders start to emerge. Uh, One is the market access group, and the second is even the patient advocacy group. Uh, So the role where medical affairs can help engage with two other stakeholders uh, has also increased, right? Because with the payer groups, uh, there's a need for much more complex scientific-led dialogue. And uh, similarly, in case of orphan diseases, patient advocacy groups uh, play a very important role. Uh, so both of those are starting to emerge as uh, key stakeholders for medical affairs teams as well.
0: Now, I'm definitely going to come back to that because we haven't talked actually in none of the episodes about, for example, patient advocacy, a little bit market tax. So just want to finish this thought on the content. So you're saying, well, I'm still going to have my scientific messaging. I'm still going to have my core content, but I'm going to now repurpose it in different formats. So I'm going to have it as a PDF, as a full Maybe it's full publication, but I'm also going to have a summary, and I'm also going to have an infographic, and I'm also going to have three short-form videos, same content, just you know, differently packaged for different persons. And I'm also going to have maybe something audio, so that when they're driving or being in the gym, I can fit to that context. So to get to that variety, core content is core content, and scientific pillars communication. But it sounds like repurposing content is really one of the ways to be able to deal with this complexity. <laughs> That it's out there right now.
1: I couldn't uh, set it up much better uh, than that, uh, Bozi, right? But one other piece of that is the holy grail is, how can we create content just in time? The way you articulated is that, hey, I'm creating content in all of these formats. I'm going to be ready. I'm waiting for the customer and then disseminate it. The holy grail is, can I create this content real time? So, hey, Bozi reaches on my website and asks for medical information on a specific product. And voila, at the back, can I have pieces of content as modular content, pull it all together, and then respond back to Bozi? Now, are we there yet? Absolutely not. Are there complexity? Absolutely yes. MLR review is an example of that, right? How do you get modular pieces of content and have them reviewed and approved in absence of context? So we are still dealing with those challenges, but the point here is the customer, if you divorce them from being a physician is also a human being who is getting the same kind of service in all of the other industries and they're starting to ask why can't pharma give it to me as well so it's not that pharma is the only regulated industry a lot of the other folks are able to do it so we are starting to push the envelope on the content side for sure
0: so a couple of thoughts on that 100 percent agree Uh, i remember i was on stage last year one of the conferences and someone said of course the very common thing oh, but we are a regulated industry and i said similar thing i'm like guys there were i don't know maybe 200 people in the room i'm like do you really think that we're the only regulated industry do you really think that charles schwab that sends me every month a printed newsletter on what should i invest in or sends me a bunch of emails so do you really think that finance industry and Charles Schwab doesn't have a team that reviews every word and they are still able to do an amazing job with their apps, amazing job with their communication. No, that is you know often an excuse. I'll be very provocative. And yes, we have to set ourselves up for success and have an editorial. MLR is basically editorial kind of review committee or group. So there are ways to do it. And I think I'll ask you definitely about GPT, but I do think like some of the great uses of GPT, like in legal, in the same way, the medical, legal, regulatory, where you know, if you feed it with do's and don'ts, then you don't really need to have marketeer, medical first person need to know every little single thing, but those rules are already embedded. And especially for video, I was thinking, because nowadays softwares, when you record a video, they immediately create a transcription. So when you want to edit the video, you can actually edit it like text. So you can literally delete pieces of text and then it changes in the video. So I'm like, whoa, this is actually perfect for MLR review because first of all, we can say, oh, this is a red flag text, let's delete it, click delete. It's just that easy. So I think they are going to be great, great, great uses of that, of JVPT. But the other thing is repurposing. We often think, and we at ever also, if you repurpose, what type of content you should start with? Ideally, something that is almost like, like an octopus in a way. You can create eight pieces of content out of it. And recently, we find ourselves talking to Pharma folks and say, oh, I don't have much on-demand content. And we say, well, I had a poll yesterday on my LinkedIn. I said, how many webinars have you done in the last 18 months? To my surprise, most people said four plus. So I'm like, okay, if you have four plus webinars, that means you have four hours of MLR or PRC approved content that you can repurpose, that one webinar can actually be repurposed meaningfully, speed up the audio, add a better thumbnail, write you know, the cut in pieces, the multiple things, in like nine to 12 short content pieces. There you go. It also can turn into audio. can also be turned into infographic. <laughs> and so just one webinar that every company has can actually lead to a lot of what you just say. Anyways, it's just a, a thought. I don't know if you guys see the same same kind of opportunities.
1: No, exactly. And can I just uh, piggyback on the video example you yeah. mentioned about transcript and so on, right? So one of our group agencies called Health, uh, actually uh, we did a very cool thing using generative AI where uh, what you can do is you can record a, KOL, just uh, initial pieces. And what you can do is you create the content that the KOL has to speak, take it to MLR review, and then put in generative AI. It creates the entire video using that short snippet you've done. Now, what it does is in the past is you would do the entire video, then it takes to the MLR folks, and then they may have a problem with something they have said. Then you go back and reshoot and so on, right? You have the endless loop. Here, you're completely off this heading. You're saying, okay, let me do a short snippet, just something very venal. Get the whole script done, get it all approved, then create the video, and voila. You don't have to go through the whole MLR process. The whole piece gets short-circuited, and you get a video literally out in a few minutes. And the results are fantastic out there, Bozi. So it's, it's just phenomenal what Generative AI can do.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about this use case a week ago in terms of, as a way of resolving what I call content choke. A pharma oftentimes find themselves, is a strong word, but like content choke. Like, how, I know I need more content. I know that doctors, like they're consumers, they're used to content first, sales rep second. right? Sometimes no sales rep. So I know I need to produce more content, but how do I produce? It? And so one of the things is, Video or talking head plus some sort of visual it doesn't need to be slide, but some sort of visual. Let's say, let's say slide it's is hard to produce. But the use case that you're sharing where you start with a script first and then you have a trained avatar of a KOL doctor. I don't know John Smith there. I feel like if all that is done and then at the bottom, it says Dr. John Smith, this is their avatar. We don't want to trick anyone, right? this is their avatar, but he has personally reviewed and approved this video, then it's fine. Because then you as a doctor, you don't care whether it's Dr. John Smith who that morning woke up and shared the music like well, male as an example, doesn't matter. You don't care because that has been reviewed and approved. They reminded me of a music industry because I saw more and more on Twitter that musician X says, hey, if you use my voice and, and I make new music using AI, as long as you pay me, uh, royalty, because you're using my, my voice, my persona, I'm fine with that. I think we're going to see more and more of that and working, if people are okay with that. So, very interesting use case.
1: Exactly. And I just want to clarify your use of the word avatar. They're not avatar in the real sense. They're actually the actual video of the person, except from a one 30-second one, we made it into a five-minute one. We are using generative AI and you fed the word in and it's the actual physician and yes, they will approve it as well. But you wouldn't feel the difference that, hey, this was done using Generative AI, because we took a 30-second video snippet and expanded it.
0: That's crazy. And I'm thinking like daily about this problem, like creating more content, and I think that that will create a lot of possibility for a lot more content done in a way that it's MLR reviewed and approved quick. So, massive, massive, massive use case that I'm excited about. One other thing I wanted to ask you, and it's maybe it's a little bit tricky question, provocative, but Sometimes I talk to medical affairs groups and they say, oh, we cannot do anything proactive." Like, yes, we can have content. So it, that means that if I have the content, I'm actually going to put it somewhere, a website or app or something. And then if doctors find it on their own, then great. But then some say, well, if I'm a smaller biotech or I have a more less risk-averse group internally to approve all this, actually, we can do some of the things proactively. So that's where I get sometimes stuck in thinking. I'm like, okay, we do all this, we do, we do all this repurposing, we prepare all this content, but if we cannot share it proactively as a medical group,
1: how are we going to deal
0: with this? So anyway, I wanted to hear your thoughts because I don't have an answer to this.
1: Yeah, and I'm not sure I have a perfect answer either. But I feel that as an industry and as a function, medical affairs has started to be more willing to experiment and adapt was uh, right so especially if it's um, going to be on the education front especially is unbranded content i think they're more willing to see if there's possibilities um, uh, to do more proactively especially if uh, it's more rare disease often diseases where you have to do far more uh, in order to disseminate the word around i think uh, they are i'm seeing more willingness uh, to Experiment now. Are we have we have we reached that final point? Not sir. I don't think so. But I think uh, there's definitely far more more uh, willingness to experiment.
0: And then last question for ask you a little bit patient advocacy and market access. Do you see the role of medical affairs in terms of launching? And we talk about omnichannel, content dissemination, increasing or decreasing or staying the same.
1: In the roles uh, of across uh, the launches, I feel the role will increase. If nothing else, uh, right? And I feel the the role will increase significantly. They're having a very strong seat on the table already, Buzzy. Uh, but I feel uh, that uh, the traditional firewalls that we saw between commercial and medical have started to crumble a bit. It's more like a sea free, more uh, exchange of information. And secondly, both sides are realizing they're reaching to the same customer at the end of the day, and they're creating sometimes two versions of the same content using the same sources of truth. And is it the most efficient way to do it? Inside, Does it make sense to join hands? I know some companies have actually perhaps dissolve the traditional roles of MSLs and sales and combine them into a single customer stakeholder. I know one company which has done that already or up there, the harbinger of change to come. Uh, but see uh, I am seeing the role only is going to be increasing for medical affairs and launches.
0: Especially since the trend you said, you know, more, more doctors wanting more scientific and evidence-based conversations. So it does make sense. And your customers I know, you know, big commercialization company you also have an agency set of a whole set of services you guys Mm. work globally companies that are doing better than others in terms of launches and their medical affairs teams there any you know three four things that you see that they're doing better earlier they do more of less of things like that
1: yeah, so a couple of companies are definitely ahead of the curve, then others go uh, again. Those are the ones. it's all depends on the leadership as well. I was just speaking to uh, one of the customers before this, and they're saying about it's maddening for us to believe that we have the same set of team members and we expect different results every time. That's not going to happen, right? You have to be open to get new set of skill sets, new type of uh, folks in your team members. Perhaps some of them may not even have medical affairs experience, but perhaps they come from a digital agency, come, they get a skill set which is completely out of the ordinary, and you marry it with medical affairs, the expertise you already have in the team, and voila, you might actually get phenomenal results. And uh, we're seeing uh, companies are starting open to that idea. We've already seen that trend happen in pharma, where chief digital officers are not necessarily from pharma, right? Some of them have come from outside industry. Why has that happened? Because pharma realizes that if you have to truly deliver to the expectation of the customers, you will have to go and push the boundaries, right? And perhaps that means people coming from outside the industry. So we are seeing that uh, trend start to happen. Now, has that happened across all companies? No, but the others uh, have moved further ahead than others.
0: Thank you for that. And then Patient advocacy, uh, you mentioned it. What is the role in general? I think pharma marketeers, medical affairs is not like if you ask someone who has experienced launches, it's not like the f- people mostly don't have deep experience working with patient advocacy groups, right? Unless you work in the patient part of the organization. So how should pharma, someone preparing a launch, but not being an expert in patient advocacy, brand director, medical director, head, how should they even think about patient Advocacy groups and their role.
1: See, at the end of the day, why does the pharma industry exist? Why is the launch pipeline happening in the first place? We are doing it for the better health of the patients, right? At the end of the day, the patient is at the center of all our efforts. And it all starts with finding what's important for the patients. What are the kind of patient insights that we can go and take back and as a result, influence the customers that influence us, HCPs or payers and so on. So, and this is where I believe. Patient advocacy groups play a very human service uh, trying to get the voices of patients heard in a larger forum. And, and therefore, it's very important for pharma companies as well as medical affairs organizations to make sure that patients are front and center for all our efforts, right? And they drive all our efforts as well. And uh, I think uh, that's where the partnership with the advocacy groups become very important as well.
0: And is it done through sharing the studies? the plan is done, but consulting them on the design of the studies, is it done through some joint work on education or it's all of the above? It really depends what disease is and how was the role of advocacy.
1: I think it's all of the above for sure, Bozi, right? So maybe it starts right at the start, even as you're getting through the phase two, three trials and starting to get the advocacy groups involved and saying, hey, what's truly important? What are we trying to do to serve the needs of the patients what can we do to make changes right make sure there's a, an impact and all of that feeds into your you know, overall market access strategy but also into your medical strategy and ultimately into your launch strategy so, right so i think it's all of the above for sure
0: yeah i've seen a lot of this last year when there was this Alzheimer launch and all this drama in the, in the news there was, there was a lot of these patient advocacy groups I, I, it's like every time there is something about patient advocacy group there, there are people who are challenging oh are they legit? Do they work too close with industry or not? And then at the same time, watching all this from the outside, I started to think like, oh, actually patient advocacy groups are becoming have stronger and stronger and bigger say. And it does make sense in the world is becoming more transparent where information is accessible as, you know, GPT ask <laughs> like when scientific evidence is just like one prompt away. <laughs> mm-hmm. It does make sense that actually the trust will be even more higher value Right, And so then you see who are the guardians of trust. And the guardians of trust, one of them, patient advocacy groups. And another one, for example, medical societies. We work also a lot with medical societies. You saw our news with ACC. And it's really guardians of that integrity of scientific
1: information that helps keeps everyone in check. (laughs) Exactly, Bozi. Like you mentioned, right? Uh, Let's accept it. There's a deficit of trust uh, right now, right, across and how do you break that? It's to more openness rather than closeness, right? So then you embrace them. So, okay, each of us have a role to play. Each of us are coming with the heart in the right place. And then as we embrace that piece, right, then suddenly we find this common ground. There's actually more things common between us than we otherwise like to believe, right? And that's where if we all believe we can open our hearts and minds to that opportunity, there's enough seat on the table for all of these different stakeholders to play a role for the ultimate betterment of the patient. And then for the
0: on a high level, you've mentioned market access groups. So market access in many countries in the U.S. has been bigger and bigger and bigger topic. So one example I just mentioned, Alzheimer's, right? You had a drug approved by FDA. You have now new drugs from the same drug class approved uh, with better data. But then, okay, we'll sell them all. So what's the role of medical affairs in that? Because in many companies, those are separate functions,
1: medical affairs and market access. And uh, that's true, uh, but uh, we are seeing uh, which is that uh, both of these groups are starting to work very closely together. because Market access, as uh, they get in front of peers, they need to provide more and more clinical evidence, more and more scientific information is needed, not just in terms of budget impact models and so on. right? So then you need to marry what's the science behind the product along with the economics uh, as well. right? And, and we're finding these account teams. Are working very closely with their medical affairs colleagues so yes they are separate functions uh, market access is using more on the commercial side but they're collaborating very very closely together
0: and one thing i'm thinking from our discussion initially about content push versus pull variety repurposing and then omnichannel and then patient advocacy market taxes so i feel like the common denominator of all this is again what you said at the beginning science evidence trust And then meeting, being focused on customer needs in a way that they're busy. So try to fit with any education in their busy lives through right format, right channel, right length, right time, and lead with science and trust, whether it's offline or online channel. I feel like, as a principle, something that is a common denominator for all of this, which function is. So I see you're nodding, nodding, so I would assume that you agree with it. That's a a phenomenal
1: summary um, of the conversation, was I couldn't uh, agree more, right? At the end of the day, trust is the cornerstone of the business that we operate, right? But it's built on the, foundation of scientific evidence uh, right and balanced with the uh, right data and in the end it has to be relevant to the end customer uh, and that's where the whole piece of personalization comes in right. and then the final piece is uh, like we mentioned the industry has always been known for innovation so you know, how do you actually make sure that you continue to evolve so that you stay relevant to all your target audience Great.
0: Love this conversation, and it's going to be really interesting how a lot of teams will adapt. I know you're also leading a working group with MAPS, so I wanted to ask you to comment medical affairs professional society. I've seen them grow in, I don't know, five to seven years from zero to thousands of members. Last time was 6,000, probably now it's 10,000. And what are kind of, on a high level, what kind of conversations do you see there happening, maybe in the
1: working group or in general, related to what we just talked about today? No, and uh, like you mentioned, right at the start, Bozi, right? it's been phenomenal uh, how MAPS has grown over the last few years. Uh, Amazing. Truly member-led, um, uh, right, with a great vision, purpose. I've been fortunate to be uh, uh, involved with the MAPS organization last few years. I co-lead the Digital Capability Group, and along with some of the other focus area working group, uh, the attempt had been that how do you help elevate the entire conversation in medical affairs across each of these capabilities so on, on the digital side for example, tomorrow we're having a webinar which is around chat GPT and therefore, you know, what are kind of experiments that we are seeing in medical affairs, right? So what MAPS has been able to do has been truly lead the change of, uh, on medical affairs across various frontiers. And what they've also been able to do phenomenally well is also get outside industry participation so that members learn from others as well. So uh, it's been really great. Point.
0: Yeah, they've been doing a great job. When I was there once or twice annual events, they have one in Europe, one in the US. It's almost like that community needed it for many years. And now there is this home for medical affairs professionals because I work both in medical affairs, I work on the commercial, I work on digital. So there was a need for that. So as a very at the very end, I'd like to ask very you know rapid fire questions so that the audience gets to know you better. First of all, what do you think will be the biggest buzzword? of the industry in 2023
1: yeah and uh, i'll tell you what has been in the past uh, it had been digital strategy and transformation and you can mix the three in different forms and you'll voila you can create right but i see these three uh, i continue to be the, uh, the three
0: you can never go wrong with those. you can never <laughs> <go. laughs> all right what is the book that made an impact on you over the past year or two
1: I read a very excellent book very recently. It's called CEO Excellence. It's been written by some senior partners at McKinsey, and I believe it has been a phenomenal read and some great insights for anybody who's aspiring for a leadership role. It doesn't need to be, uh, everybody doesn't need to be a CEO, but I feel uh, they have a great framework for anybody aspiring for a leadership role.
0: Great. I heard of it. I haven't read it, but I, 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 heard, I recommend of it. So heard it. McKinsey is <laughs> excellent observations, of course, and insights. I mean, they have a platform, McKinsey Insights, right? Yeah. And then, what types of music do you listen to when you feel stressed out or you need some inspiration?
1: I'm a huge uh, country music fan, actually, oh. and uh, more of the older variety, not necessarily the recent one, but uh, that really uh, Glenn Campbell's of the world, mall regard who I really love, uh, especially in Long time I didn't time. see that coming. All right, good. <laughs> good, good to know. to my personality, isn't it? <laughs>
0: yeah. And then who in the world of pharma would you like to take out for lunch? If you had the magic button,
1: I really admire what uh, Lydia Fonseca has been doing uh, at Pfizer. She's the chief digital officer, came from outside a couple of years back, really transformed the digital organization. I have the opportunity to meet quite a few of her leadership team. I haven't had the chance to meet with Lydia herself directly. So I'd love to take that opportunity if I could. Lydia,
0: if you're listening to this, <laughs> it's time time for lunch and what's one sentence advice you would give to someone just starting in the
1: world of pharma life sciences i think uh, like i said uh, before uh, this is a very exciting time where the industry is going through stay humble stay hungry and always be willing to learn uh, right Uh, with this phenomenal opportunity to learn and grow and then nothing like uh, these times in pharma industry
0: yeah crazy times it's so so good to be alive in this time
1: and then uh, where can people find you online You can find me on LinkedIn, that's uh, the best place uh, where you can uh, send me a note and I'm happy to connect. All right. Thank you,
0: Samir. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Bozi. Thank you.
1: This podcast was brought to you by EverMed. EverMed offers pharma
0: companies the fastest path to having their own Netflix-like on-demand video engagement hubs for doctors or patients. Make sure to search for Pharma Launch Secrets in Apple Podcasts or Spotify and click on the follow icon so you don't miss any future
1: episodes. On behalf of the team here at EverMed, thanks for listening.